If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and we'll get you a Bible. Real quick, I want to introduce you guys to Matt Ortiz. Matt, why don't you stand up, you and your crew. Matt's a church planner in San Diego, uh, one of our Acts 29 churches. So we're stoked that he's here. Flew up yesterday, staying at the Kennedy School. Very, it's warm. It's always like this. It's usually 80. So... We just tell people it rains all the time, so no one will move up. But it's 85, balmy, pretty much January on, just like this. It's wonderful. We've been going through the Gospel of John. If you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 21. At the end of chapter 20, Jesus, John, I'm sorry, says these words in verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of His disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Really from the onslaught of this gospel, John has set out for that very purpose, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would live a particular type of life, an abundant life, an eternal life. He speaks of it over and over through his gospel. And that this this book that was written so many years ago continues to speak that call out to us. It continues its purpose that God inspired John to write about. So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life, eternal life, abundant life in His name. As we've journeyed through this Gospel, we've seen incredible stories of Christ. It's a, it's a monumental work for portraying who the Son of God was and is. And it starts with kind of a prologue in John chapter 1, where in 18 verses he just sort of wraps up this big theological thought. He speaks of the Word becoming flesh. The Word being God and becoming flesh and moving into our neighborhood, moving into our lives. He says, we have beheld its glory. And then for the rest of the book, You have these stories. This is what the Word becoming flesh looks like. And you see Jesus in action. The woman at the well, the man that was healed by the pool, the blind man who's given sight, Lazarus is raised from the dead, religious leaders are trying to kill him, Jesus finally is crucified, and then He raises from the dead and conquers death. And then John wraps it up with an epilogue. So it's sort of this bookend where you have a prologue and an epilogue. In chapter 21. And I want to read that for you as we wrap up this gospel. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And it happened this way Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish. Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. 
So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Jesus was wearing polarized lenses. He was able to see the fish. They couldn't make them out. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. Now it's not that he, he put a coat on and jumped into the water. The Greek literally is he's fishing naked. Don't ask me. It's what they did. And he puts on his underwear and he jumps in the water. Peter and Aaron, we don't want you to do that when we send you out sturgeon fishing. <laughs> so they did in the old days. Are you uncomfortable? <laughs> Just kidding. So he wraps himself in this outer garment and he jumps into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing in the net full of fish. And they were not far from the shore. They were about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning, coals there with fish on it and some bread. So Peter has this incredible spiritual experience, jumps in the water, and they're left to do all the work. I love people like that. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and he dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter at this time was hurt because Jesus asked him for a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself. And when you, were, you went where you wanted to go, and when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, and this is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would never die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He said, if I want him to remain alive, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things, who wrote them down. And we know that his testimony is true. And Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that 
even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. John writes this monumental gospel, and then he ends it with this really bizarre epilogue. just seems like he ruined the whole thing. I mean, you got, you got Jesus who is walking around. I mean, He's healing people. He's raising the dead. He's doing these miraculous things. And then we end with a fishing story. It's just like, why would John do that? Why would he wrap up his Gospel with this brief little epilogue? And I believe that the importance of this story is that the incredible reality of this resurrected Jesus shows up in the ordinariness of our lives. And in those ordinary places, He transforms our souls. At this resurrection breakfast. And there's this, this weird paradox that is painted for us. You have this incredible act of deity. You have Jesus raising from the dead. Fairly significant act. You have a miraculous catch of fish. This incredible act of deity. God did this. Only God could do this. And you have that in the midst of the extreme ordinariness. A meal. Breakfast. Fishing. conversation. Why would John close the Gospel like this? Why would he end it like this? And I believe it's because it's this bookend for chapter 1. Chapter 1, he says, the Word has become flesh. God, the God who is the extraordinary God, became very ordinary in His flesh. And He moved into our ordinary lives. And He's here in the midst of it. And as Jesus resurrects from the dead, He ends with a simple meal and conversation that the resurrected Christ is present in. The Word became flesh. It's where He begins. And it's where He ends. There's nothing more human about eating. You have three meals a day, sometimes more. You eat all the time. It's part of being human. You have to eat to survive. You have conversation all the time with people all around you. Very human. It's interesting to me that when you look at the resurrection accounts, two, if not three of them, take place at a meal. The resurrected Christ shows up during mealtime. And Jesus brings these two together, this extraordinary and the ordinary. The Word became flesh, was crucified, it dies, and then He rose from the dead. What John wants you to walk away with is the understanding that this resurrected Christ is alive now. Thousands of years later, He's still alive today. It's easy for us to kind of latch ourselves on to the historical Jesus. To the miraculous acts that He did in history. But John is inviting the writer into 
the ordinariness of Peter's life, of the disciples' life. It's your life at Starbucks. It's your life across the table from someone, with a coworker, where you live. Does the resurrected Jesus make any difference in your ordinary life? And the first thing that we see in this chapter is the meal. The resurrected Jesus shows up in that ordinary thing called a meal. It's interesting that when you think about it, Jesus largely goes unnoticed in those ordinary places of our lives. For most of us, we're so self-consumed that if Jesus was to show up at the meal with you, there wouldn't be, you wouldn't know He was there. We find ourselves so consumed with our lives to make them something more than ordinary. What we really want Jesus to do is make our lives not ordinary. Make us popular. Make us famous. Make us important. Make us rich. Do something in my life that sets me apart from the crowd that makes me really, really special. And for 2,000 years, Jesus has said, well... There's Joes and Bobs and Sallies and Pete's that I've been taking from death to life and being the resurrected God to them. But that doesn't excite us because we want to be put on the mantle. We want the one to be getting the attention. When Jesus shows up in this meal with Peter, it's interesting that he is the host. He's not the guest saying, come, come to the beach and let's eat. And he burns the coals and gets them hot and he makes the fish and the bread. He says, sit down, let's eat together. So ordinary. You do it all the time. But it's in the place of ordinariness that God wants to show up and transform your soul. We have bought into such a, a bizarre spirituality in America. We're always looking for the bigger and the better and the next and the special numbers and buildings and size. All of that is very important to us. I remember when I was in La Grande, Oregon, and we would have this little pastors get together. And La Grande, Oregon is, you know, 12,000 people in the middle of eastern Oregon. It is not the epicenter for cultural, you know, expression. So we're in that place, and about every three months, this one particular church had a new youth pastor, associate pastor, who always showed up. And then he'd be gone in three months, which is pretty normal for a youth minister. But as he shows up, always just like God is doing a new thing. God is going to do this miraculous thing in this town. I had a vision, I had a dream, blah, 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 and it's on and on, and he sets up his little youth group room like a stage, and he's doing altar calls, and he's got 15 kids just going, this is really weird. Uh, I go, okay, I'll go forward. And in three months, he's gone. And another guy comes to town with the next thing, and it's, oh, you're not going to believe what God's going to do. And I'm just sitting there going, for 2,000 years, Jesus has been taking people from death to life. Taking us from hell to heaven. 
forgiving our sin, transforming our lives. What's wrong with that? Why do we need to add to it? We're always trying to add something new and special to the oldest thing that exists. God. And God's going, wow. Now that you're here, it's going to get good. You know? Man, I never would have thought of that. He's literally as old as the hills. I mean, literally. God is not up there going, woo, impressive. But we are. Because we get tired of the ordinary. Just like, God, spice it up a little. Make my life extra special. We do it from the glamour magazines. I get sent every week that we could be a church like this. Big buildings and everyone looks good. I mean, really good, happy, smiley, you know. But nobody in that church is like that. They're all ordinary people just like you. And Jesus is not impressed by us polishing it up. He says, I want to show up in the meal and the conversation. That is the place that me, as the living, resurrected Jesus, will transform your ordinary life. I'm going to do extraordinary things in you, but it's going to be in the midst of the ordinary. And you can imagine the American evangelical just trampling past that little burning coals on the beach, past the guy with the long hair that's cooking up the dinner, because there's a beach rally down here, and we're going to pass out tracks, and it's spring break. We're going to evangelize everybody. It's going to be huge. And Jesus is just having fish and bread with eight guys. It's not that exciting, though. Let's get on to the next big thing. But God is just going to have breakfast. Is that okay with you? Because that's where God wants to show up in your life. In the meal. And he's host, not guest. Everything about the ordinariness of your life is a miracle. The way you breathe. The food you eat. The provision of your life. It all comes from the bigger picture of miracle. And we deem it as ordinary, and we want to move on. We go through McDonald's, we do our fast food, we eat, we get on with life, because life somehow captures us, and there's going to be something amazing for us. But Jesus is back sitting across the table going, are we going to eat and talk? I remember when I went to Ireland and uh, I was at the famous coffee place in Dublin called Bewley's, and you can't get coffee to go. I remember thinking, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of, right? <laughs> can't get coffee to go. They finally scrounge up a cup for me, this little tiny styrofoam cup, and they put a lid on it that you can't even open and drink out of, right? Because they assume I'm going to take this somewhere and then sit down, and drink it, and talk to somebody. For them, that was all about relationship, that you went and had coffee to sit across, to talk, to connect. For us, it was all about the caffeine. I mean, <laughs> we got a fast-paced life to live. We got to keep, you know, the thing going here. And I wanted to go over there and think, man, I'm going to sell to-go cups. I'm going to be a millionaire. It'll just be, like, amazing. 
But something about our life is so rushed and hurried because we want to avoid the ordinary. But Jesus is there in the ordinary. To sit across from someone at that meal and to not just say, God, thank you for this meal, blah, 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 and give your token prayer so you can get on with it. But it's recognizing he's the host and he's here. And he wants to do something extraordinary in my life. The resurrected Jesus shows up in the ordinariness of the meal. Are you paying attention to him? The second thing is that you see him show up in the conversation. In the ordinariness of the meal, something deeply spiritual takes place in Peter's life. Something transformational. If you would have said to Peter, we're going to the beach to have breakfast, nothing in your head registers. This could be a profound spiritual moment. Just like if I said, hey, we're going to Denny's to have breakfast, none of you would think, wow, this could be amazing. I'm going to hang on. God's going to show up. But in the ordinariness of that meal, Peter has a profound connection with Jesus. We understand that he's paying attention to Jesus. He's jumped out of the boat. He's very excited about this meal. He's clothed himself. He's appropriate now. And he's at the, at the meal. They're reclining or they're walking. And it's in this time of leisure, in this time of nothing, downtime, that they have this conversation. And have you ever had something happen between you and somebody else? And then you're sitting there across from the table with them. And it's just an awkward moment. Am I the only one that has that? Has that, that happened? Maybe it's you all have a problem with me. I'm not sure. But you know those moments where you're just kind of shooting the breeze and having small talk. But you know, man, there's something big to talk about. Well, that's, that's this conversation. Peter denied him three times. He got arrested. He was being beaten and flogged. Peter's saying, I don't want anything to do with the guy. Never knew who he was. He's cussing people out. And then he hears the rooster crow and he remembers. Now they're sitting there across the table from one another eating their fish and bread. And Peter is restored. Jesus questions him three times. Do you love me? Just as he denied him three times. And his answer is, Peter, if you love me, I want you to feed my sheep. He connects Peter back to this relationship. A relationship that said, Peter, I'm going to use you in extraordinary ways in the lives of ordinary people. I want you to feed my sheep. If you love me and you're coming after me, Peter, don't worry about fishing and making your own living and all your cash. I want you to come after me. I want you to take care of those who believe in me. And Jesus is calling Peter back to a picture of that relationship that they began with. And Peter feels kind of on the spot. I mean, is he the only guy at breakfast who betrayed Jesus? was everybody else sitting there going, hey, I'm ready to get crucified too. You know, I'm right here. Now, 
All of them ran. All of them ran. And so Peter's looking around going, what, what about that guy? What about him? And that's how we respond when Jesus shows up in that personal moment. We feel safe in the crowd, right? Because we're, we're here at church and you're in a room full of sinful people, full of people we all have doubted, we've all blown it, we've all questioned God, we've all sinned, right? It's safe. There's safety in numbers. But when Jesus shows up in the ordinariness of your life, he's going to ask something personal of you. Something that he's asking you. And if you were sitting across from the table from him, what would that be right now? Would it be, do you love me? Would it be, are you, are you going to ask me to forgive you? Would it be, why are you doubting? Would it be, are you going to trust me with your life? What would that be? Because what we deem as ordinary is the very soil that God says, I'm going to do the miraculous transformation of your soul. But you got to pay attention to me. You got to listen. You got to be awake. I'm asking you questions. We need each other in that place so we can elbow each other like John did to Peter and say, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. Many of you are journeying through your Christian life in complete isolation. And you're really busy as Christians. You go to home communities. You go to Bible studies. You're involved in ministry. But nobody knows what's going on in your heart. That is not what the church is supposed to be. The church is that place where someone elbows you and says, I see the Lord in this place in your life. Trust in me. And we become the word in flesh. We become the hands and the feet and the voice of Christ to each other. That we are God's gift to one another is one another in that ordinary place called your life. God wants to do extraordinary stuff. And he's interested in your personal response to him. Do you need him to forgive you? Restore you? Affirm you? Call you? Send you? What is it? Because that's what he wants. And it's personal. It's you. As we end this gospel, John wants us to remember. I believe it's why he's ending it this way. To remember that this risen Christ is still just that, the risen Christ. He's still alive. Which means that in this room right now, he is looking for the woman at the well. He continues to seek out those who have thrown themselves at other people because they just didn't think they were worth anything. And he says, I'm going to redeem you and save you. He continues to look for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth to heal 
the lame heart, to open the blind eyes of those of you who live in unbelief, to invite you to see him as the meaning of life and the answer of death. John's gospel keeps going on. Say, I want to live in your life so you could bear much fruit. I want you to embrace this union we have with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have eternal life in His name. He still shows up in the ordinariness of the meal and the conversation. And yet most of the time, for my life and your life, He goes completely unnoticed. So we give ourselves over to the hype, to the rally, the crusade that just sounds good. The next book, the thing. And why does he go unnoticed? I think he goes unnoticed for two reasons. The first is our unwillingness to believe in him as he is, alive and resurrected. When you wake up tomorrow morning and you call yourself a Christ follower, you serve a living and resurrected Jesus in your ordinary life. And you think, I mean, I mean, tomorrow morning, Rick, you don't understand, I'm going to go to a lame job, and I'm going to work with people that I don't like very much, and my roommates are going to have this messy house that they never clean. You mean Jesus is alive and resurrected in that? Yeah. My husband's going to continue to bug me. Yeah. And he's still alive and resurrected amongst the dirty dishes and the messy diapers and the unkept lawn and the bills and all the stuff. He's alive and resurrected. And he wants to meet with us in the meal and in the conversation. The second is our unwillingness to call each other to pay attention to him. And this is the bare bones of community. Are you willing to be the hands and feet of Christ to one another? To say when I'm having people over for dinner that we're not going to just talk about your jobs and the weather and busy talk. We're going to look for Jesus. So we can notice Him and point Him out and encourage you or affirm you. And I need you to do the same thing for me. That we're paying attention to the living Jesus in our midst. In the ordinariness of this meal, he is host. And it's there that he wants to do something deeply personal in your soul. And when you walk out of these doors today, a lot of you are going to go get coffee. You're going to go out to dinner. You're going to sit across from people who are created in the image of God, who Christ died for, who, who hold incredible value. And in that time of leisure, when you're doing nothing, pay attention to Jesus. He's resurrected and he's alive. Help each other to believe and help each other to celebrate his work in your souls. And finally, it's that intentional conversation. Expect Jesus to show up on your beach 
but he wants to do something in your life. In the ordinariness and the extraordinariness of who we are. It's simple, man, but it's deeply profound. John wants us to walk out of here going, yeah, you heard my gospel. You saw all the big stuff, but today in your life, that Jesus is alive and well. And he's ready to do work in your soul. Will you let him? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the word that became flesh. That you moved into our lives and displayed to us your glory. And tonight... Today we come to this table, we come to ordinary bread, ordinary juice, ordinary wine that you use to initiate an extraordinary meal called communion. We're so grateful that you were willing to come and to die on the cross in our place, to forgive our sins, and that as God you had the power to raise from the dead. We are so grateful. And I pray, God, that you would give us the kind of faith that notices you in the meal and in the conversation. As we come to this time of communion, God, I pray that we would see you, Jesus, as across the table from us, wanting to do something deeply personal in our lives. That that's what we would be thinking about as we take the bread and we take the wine. I thank you, God, that you don't need all of us to be superheroes of Christianity. That you take us in our very simple, ordinary state. And you do something miracle and eternal in our hearts. Give us the courage to not abdicate the next meal and the next conversation just into the norm of hurriedness. But God, let us pay attention. Let us have the courage to speak to one another, to be able to say, there is the Lord. And in that place, expect you to do something in our souls. Thank you for being a God that's more than we could ever ask or imagine. Now meet with us, we ask, in Jesus' name. The invitation now is for us to respond, as always. We realize that worship isn't just getting up here singing songs or any motion that we come. None of that is worship, but worship is heart response to God. And so as Rick talked about just the ordinary stuff, we come... We come for communion, bread and wine, very ordinary stuff. But within that is the symbol of Christ and what he did for us. And right now we want to take just a few minutes and play some instrumental music and, and ask that question that Rick asked. If, if Christ was sitting across the table from you, what would he be saying? And the question isn't, you know, do we like the message or any of that, but what is, as we come here, what is Christ speaking to you? 
And only in that can we truly respond to worship. So we're going to play a few minutes of instrumental stuff, and we invite you to just to deal with Christ in this time.